back with another exciting and i would say broadly crazily <laughs> i don't know how to insane episode of radio versus the martians i'm mike gillis and i'm casey dorn and i don't even know where to get started i really love the way this episode turned out but i look at it and i'm thinking how the hell are we going to cover the topic of expanded universes yeah and we just happened to have two people who we could reach in the gigantic uh, event horizon of fandom to be able to pull off a conversation about this. Yeah, I think this is one of our best episodes. I'm incredibly happy with how it turned out. In fact, we got so much good material that after you're done listening to this episode, we are going to release a second bonus mini episode of Radio <laughs> versus the Martians that actually comes out of a short segment we were taking a break and it led to a conversation that goes in all kinds of crazy directions. So check the uh, feed on I guess it's the RSS feed, your <laughs> iTunes machine, your newfangled crazy podcastiness. I promise you're, that actually makes sense. We'll fix that sentence in post. You're you're, you're given your droid. My droid. Your, your music droid. Your newfangled phone call device. <laughs> Just check that out. You'll see that on there. Also, go to RadioVersionsTheMartians.com. You'll see this great bonus episode. But this episode itself, I think it turned out great. We had a great panel. And when you get into the idea of expanded universes, I don't even know where to get started on that. Yeah, in and, fact, and that's is... the fantastic bit about expanded universes is that anything, any franchise that you know and love probably has a novelization, a video game, maybe even a tabletop RPG, and the lore just expands exponentially. And so if, you, if you're really going to be a next-level badass, you've got to be – you've got to also – dive in head deep to expanded universes but obviously those are the true nerds yeah I true devotees absolutely we are in a golden age my friend <laughs> of nerddom where everything is more than just what you see on the screen so i think it's time for us to talk about recommendations sure. and oh my god there is so much to choose from you just had to pick your own little corner and say that's the thing you ought to check out what did you find this month casey well, I went back to actually something that I had started for the Star Wars panel and then didn't finish, which is the Timothy Zahn Thrawn trilogy. And this is basically the series of books of Star Wars related novels from the 1990s that uh, tried to continue the story after Return of the Jedi. The first one is called Heir to the Empire. And it's essentially the story of how the main character shake down. It's incredibly well done, introduces a, a few great uh, I guess you could call them extra canonical characters, Admiral Thrawn being one of them, and really rounds out the is it it's really a pristine example of rounding out the Star Wars universe with characters you've never seen or heard of before in ways that are actually surprisingly fit for the universe. It is, and it's really one of those series that also is super canonical to a lot of fans out there that mm -hmm. to a lot of people who've been following the Star Wars series this long this is their episodes seven, eight, and nine. Right. It's the second trilogy. Right. And is really, I can't say any other Star Wars media has ever come to the level of prominence that this right. trilogy has. And and just to uh, for balance, my second recommendation is there's a website called Memory Alpha, and this is basically the wiki page for all of Star Trek's extended lore. However, that's all regular canon lore. There is a sister site called 
memory beta. And this actually contains all of the information for everything that's been written that's a licensed work that's not necessarily canon, but it's also sort of official. So if you want to hear about the extended adventures of Commander Riker on the SS the USS Titan, um, this is where you'd go. Uh, and I could find myself falling into and chasing links uh, all over the place. Of course, you have to love the universe, but it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling how far other authors have taken it. So this month, I decided to fall back on my favorite sci-fi franchise of all time, which is Planet of the Apes. And a lot of the Planet of the Apes expanded universe stuff tends to be mortared to tie the various movies together. Mm. They clearly didn't have the budget back in the 1970s, and their budget was constantly being slashed. So it left a lot of little pockets for dedicated fans to get in on. And it's amazing how consistently Planet of the Apes stuff is published, considering the last new movie in the original series came out in like 1973, 1974. Wow. And the fact that you still have new fans today creating mer- merchandise and stories in that universe is pretty astounding. So even though there's a lot of great comic books coming out from Boom Studios, the folks who started in, I believe, 2009, 2010 doing Planet of the Apes comics in that original universe, I'm going to pick the cream of the crop, the stuff that I really enjoy, which is a miniseries called Betrayal on the Planet of the Apes. It's written by the husband and wife team of Corinna Becco and Gabriel Hardman. Oh, my God, the art in this is incredible because it takes the visuals that are incredibly loyal to the original visuals of the series and expands them and makes the world feel so much bigger Hmm. than the limitations of 1968 cinema. Hmm. It looks exactly the way you remember the world looking. And this is clearly a work made by fans. They love this. This is a labor of love. It was a four-issue miniseries that was done in 2011. It's currently available in trade paperback. It's a story of a young Dr. Zaius, 20 years before the first movie, and him coming to prominence on the Ape Council. At the same time, there's an ape scientist who's discovering that this vermin, this humans, may not be as dumb as we think, and they may even be able to be taught sign language. (laughs) And then it becomes a lot harder to justify the extermination policy that they have against them. And a conspiracy begins to suppress that knowledge. And there's a murder mystery. There's a guerrilla lawyer who's trying to uncover it. (laughs) It's really, really good. And it actually led to a sequel, which is just as good, called Exile on the Planet of the Apes. And then eventually a miniseries that led all the way up to the end of the second movie, but from the perspective of Cornelius, Zira, and Dr. Milo, Hmm. called Planet of the Apes Cataclysm. They're just so incredibly good, and I would say that anyone who has even a passing interest in the original Planet of the Apes stuff, this is the perfect place to start to say, hey, you know, there's stuff out there, even though a lot of these actors have died and a lot of these sets are not going to be built in the same way, and we've moved on to a new era of Planet of the Apes. There is still still some really good stuff being made from the original continuity. So with that in mind, let's get to the panel, and we will see you on the other side. When you look at the sheer number of novels, comic books, and video games that are released under the heading of Star Wars these days, it can be hard to imagine that the franchise was ever small. 
If you're under 30, it may be downright impossible to think that at one time, the entire sum of George Lucas's famous space opera was just a single movie, a handful of trading cards, a series of Marvel comic books, and a notorious TV holiday special. But if I've learned anything in my years of fandom, it's that nothing popular can ever stay small for long. And Star Wars is by no means unique on that front, nor were they ever the first. Just about any series of movies, cartoons, television shows, or video games with any following will inevitably acquire what the good folks at Lucasfilm have dubbed an expanded universe. And that's a phrase that could probably stand to be defined a little bit. It's a weird one, and I'm sure that even my definition is going to be debatable. Broadly speaking, when you can't confine a story, its characters, or its world to its original medium, you probably have an expanded universe. It wasn't enough to get the adventures of Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Han Solo on the cinematic screen. Not when it meant having to wait a few years for a movie sequel. We wanted more stories now, and it didn't have to be delivered in movie form. Our hero's exploits bled into a series of novels, comic books, role-playing games that outlasted the original trilogy of films by a number of years into the mid-80s, before exploding in 1991 with Timothy Zahn's trilogy of books beginning with Heir to the Empire, which appeared on the New York Times bestseller list and ignited the franchise's second big fan renaissance and ushered in an era with more Star Wars stories in more mediums than ever before. But today we're not just talking about Star Wars. We're talking about the impulse of stories to escape their original medium and into a series of books, comics, games, and even fan-created media that all wanted to continue the adventures of our favorite characters and worlds. This expansion has fed the appetites of countless fans. Expanded Universe Media has helped stoke the flame of older canceled media franchises and kept their fandoms alive. They've helped dedicated fans dig deeper into their favorite series mythology and cast of minor characters while creating their own. And they provoked thousands of maddening message board battles over what stories do and don't count in the series' official canon. While the series that one could easily label as geeky have always led the charge, they aren't the only series that have crossed over into new mediums. Shows like Star Trek and Doctor Who have been joined on bookshelves and comic racks alongside the likes of Planet of the Apes, CSI, World of Warcraft, Criminal Minds, Babylon 5, Indiana Jones, Shaft, Quantum Leap, Burn Notice, The X-Files, Monk, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Red Dwarf, The Rockford Files, Psych, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halo, Dungeons and Dragons, Castle, Sonic the Hedgehog, and even Miami Vice. <laughs> and one of the longest-running series of licensed expanded universe books are based on the detective series Murder, She Wrote, which continue to be published to this day nearly 20 years after the series was canceled. The first book in the series even had to be republished after fans of the show pointed out that it included several inaccuracies, including protagonist Jessica Fletcher driving a car, something she had said in the series she had never learned to do. <laughs> Fandom. Gotta love it. This is also a topic that is oddly timely since the moment months ago when the internet cracked in half after it became clear that the announcement of a new Star Wars sequel would come with a cost. Namely, the dense and elaborate post-Return of the Jedi timeline constructed through, dare I say, thousands of novels, Dark Horse comic books, and video games that have been published since 1991 was being tossed out and rebooted. 
This meant that Lucasfilm was essentially throwing many beloved characters born in the pages of those stories, like Grand Admiral Thrawn, Mara Jade Skywalker, and Jason and Jaina, the children of Han Solo and Princess Leia, out of continuity. The sheer level of fan outrage, even by the standards of Star Wars fans, over this announcement made one thing abundantly clear. People loved, loved, loved the expanded universe of their favorite series, and they were not willing to let it go quietly. And that's the topic of this month's installment of Radio vs. the Martians, the expanded universe, the supplemental stories and characters that crop up around our favorite media. Let's meet the panel. First, a returning panelist we haven't seen in a while. He writes and publishes supplements for the Numenera role-playing game for Ryan Shaddock Games, the appropriately named Ryan Shaddock. Good to have you back, Ryan. And also back, our gleeful misanthrope. She's an author, artist, and fan fiction aficionado, and is skipping Super Bowl Sunday to be here today. Thank you, and welcome back, Rosalind Townsend. Yes, I have returned. And finally, <laughs> the Jedi Master Saboeth to my Grand Admiral Thrawn, Mr. Casey Doran. Thanks, Mike. Good intro. So... I want to get this conversation started by asking about your own conception of expanded universe stuff. Not just one franchise, but anything. Ryan, I want to start with you because you're the big Star Wars fan, and that's a franchise that really kind of kicked off my thinking on this topic. How much licensed material, it's comics, novels, whatever, have you consumed in your day? Um, well, uh, quite a bit. I mean, (laughs) I was never into the comics, but I, you know, and only to a limited degree, the novels. I read the the Thrawn trilogy, which is amazing, and a few others. But uh, for me, Star Wars, if you're asking specifically about Star Wars. Anything. uh, Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I think we're all consumers of larger, expanded universes. Um, I think Star Wars is a good example in that. You know, it's one where role-playing games expanded so much on it. And obviously, it's a very controversial uh, sort of uh, canon thing. And I think that's, on some level, that's what we're talking about here is, like, all of that stuff that's outside canon is really so amazing, on top of what, what is sort of official. You know, my wife is was involved in the, the Harry Potter fan community for a long time when the books were coming out. Um, and that was, I think, probably bigger than almost anything when, in terms of fan fiction. Um, and I think really changed a lot of people's lives in terms of their knowledge of writing and their ability to write. And, and it alters our definition of canon, in a sense. I guess to expand on that, uh, to her, certain kinds of fan fiction are almost canon. And so I think that, that the fact that once uh, sort of art gets adopted by society, society can then in turn turn it into something else. Um, And I think that canon sort of is a great example of that. I think that's something that really encapsulates the entire discussion we're going to have today, because fan ownership is a big part of it, fan fiction, but also official license stuff. And the idea that there are two different kinds of canon that we're talking about. There's the official original medium stories, like whether it's the TV show or the series of movies. And then there's the stuff that crops up based on it. And I know that one of the things that Lucasfilm has at least created the vocabulary for, which is quote-unquote A canon and B canon, what counts and doesn't count towards making new stories. And that the general assumption that I've always had of this, and I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on this, is that the original medium, like the TV show, the movies, whether it's Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the stuff that the actors are actually appearing in, mm-hmm. that stuff takes precedent. And that 
the other stuff counts until it doesn't, until you actually come along with an original medium story that would later contradict it. Like, for instance, I actually own a character encyclopedia of Star Wars from the mid-90s. And one of the things in that is prequel stuff that doesn't count anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. for instance, there's discussion about Luke Skywalker's Uncle Owen being Obi-Wan Kenobi's brother. And I guess that comes from a line in the original Return of the Jedi script that they later cut and didn't shoot. And actually, because the original script is what they hand off to the people writing novelizations, it made it in there. Because those guys are always going off of an original version of the script. And Because when you start any kind of filming of any movie, the script is going to change pretty constantly on set to match it to the voice of the actors. Unless, of course, George Lucas is filming it and directing it. (laughs) And he makes you read that robotic dialogue and doesn't let you tweak it a little bit to make it sound human. But... I want to get your guys' thoughts on this idea of canon, what counts and what doesn't count, and whether we consider expanded medium stuff, quote-unquote, real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, I sort of uh, assumed that we were going to intro this topic in talking about canonicity, right? But to your point about novelizations, like, my exposure to expanded universe was... Probably due to the fact that my dad was always a vociferous sci-fi reader and there were always paperbacks strewn about the house. In addition to just the plain sci-fi novels, he would always there would always be a novel adaptation of a popular movie, usually a science fiction movie, um, lying around the house. Like, I remember Black Hole, Alien. We got the Total Recall, uh, <laughs> a novel adaptation, which had some interesting parts. Some of the Star Trek movies, uh, we, we had those. And for, for me, it was interesting to to read those and to have seen the movies and some of these that I'd seen many times and had noticed those little differences, right? Those differences in lines that weren't there were plots that you didn't see in the movie, but maybe were implied. And of course, for the same reason you said, like there were things that might have been in an earlier version of the script that got cut and you just didn't see it on there. But I was sort of fascinated by that there was an alternative facet to the stories you already knew. And it might have helped explain the characters a little part of the characters a little bit better, or it might have just thrown it into confusion. And that knowing that about stuff that I loved was pretty cool. You got to be a keeper of sacred knowledge. Yeah. I, my favorite thing about that is you'll look at like not even necessarily something that counts as an expanded universe where it's a totally different story, but something like you're just reading a script or a transcript even. And you'll see it's it's the thrill that you get when you're learning something that's a little bit more arcane and a mm. little bit more esoteric. And you're like, oh, this is an aspect of it that I never would have gotten before. So hipster smugness. There is totally a hipster smugness <laughs> regarding it. I'm not going to lie. I think that's just nerdiness. Yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's that's the definition of nerdy is just minutia, you know, that love of the detail. Mm-hmm. I think that we've got media now that lends itself better to that kind of nerdiness now mm-hmm. because any franchise of any significant fandom quality is going to have some online wiki page that will tear every single little piece apart where even the most incidental characters will get their own page nowadays. And we want to lay out everything. Or rival wikis. Those are oh, awesome. my God. <laughs> Wiki warfare. <laughs> but getting into this other idea of the expanded universe, I know that there's kind of levels of fandom. And, that, right. of course, this is a bit nerdier than the upper tier, which is like guys and girls who like the Avengers or something but don't want to read a novelization or don't want to go to anything beyond what that set thing is. Like, There's a lot of people who are diehard Star Trek, Star Wars, 
even Murder, She Wrote fans, <laughs> who just have no... Don't look at me! <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's a, there's a limit. There's like these concentric circles of fandom, and you only want to get so far into it. And I've really found that expanded universe stuff just does not have a great reputation no. in the same way that licensed video game stuff based on a movie doesn't. Right. So given how poor the reputation is for expanded universe stuff is in general, is it really just a cheap cash in or does it just get a bad rap? I don't know. I, I, I'd say that the, that other than the Timothy is on stuff, my brother had always had to, uh, um, like Dragonlance novels lying around, and I think we mentioned this on the D and D our D and D panel, which Ryan you were on, is that the D and D the novelizations were kind of in that concentric tier of people of devotees, where you really can't not be a complete anorak for the original <laughs> thing and and want and actually want to read those. If you've ever if you've ever picked up a Dragonlance novel. And yeah, not, not, I will, it would you you would not you would basically not understand it and probably not care all that much about what's happening. Yeah, I mean that setting is really more of like an adaptation of the novels than it is the novels or an adaptation of the setting. Right. Um, right. And I think it was designed that way originally. And I know uh, that having read some Dragonlance books, a lot of the actual game mechanics are written into the story and I can imagine that being off-putting or even confusing to somebody who isn't a player in that I mean, even just in D&D, because spells and, and different things work out pretty much exactly the same way they do in the game in these novels. Mm. And if you're not familiar with that, it may be kind of weird or confusing. So You can take that to a very broad level outside of another. Like, I, I've never read any of the Dragonlance novels, but I've, you know, you pick up a novel for any franchise and they don't, they expect you to at least know who the characters are. And that's already right. sort of like. They're not going to describe and introduce a character that you've seen on television for 20 years, for example. That's true. You don't really have to. And mm. I think one of the real advantages that we have with expanded universe stuff is that it can keep these characters alive way past the point right. where the actors want anything to do with this stuff. Because so, I mean, Sometimes literally, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> right. small. They brought him back. Yeah. You can't even make it go away. And that character was barely there in the first place. Right. But, I mean, ask... Uh, in an interview sometime, a question about Indiana Jones to Harrison Ford. If you want to make him roll his eyes really, really hard and kind of make him go, oh, fuck. This is a guy who did not sign on to being part of the convention circuit and isn't desperate to kind of want to reconnect with the fans. This is just a gig, you know. And I think as fans, sometimes we get into that mindset where we kind of want the people to play these characters to be as big of fans as we are. And hmm. frequently they aren't. I mean, I think... That from a survival standpoint, they've adapted and learned how to speak to fans. That's who are your hardcore. job in a way. Yeah, but you can never really escape it. But Harrison Ford came from the generation where once I'm done playing Han Solo, I don't have to talk about Han Solo anymore. <laughs> and, and one thing that we might be circling around here is that expanded universes seem like they are more of a readerly writerly connection than more of a actorly watcherly connection. If you know what I mean, it's, it's, I'm not sure though. I mean, you know, I've heard um, the creators of you know, the Sherlock show say that they consider their show fan fiction. Hmm. Uh, wow. So in that sense, well, I mean, and you could think of all adaptations since Arthur Conan Doyle as being sort of fanfic, uh, which is what their argument was. And hmm. just, they have a bigger budget. Right. Well, I mean, it, it is interesting to bring that up because when I was researching about canonicity, the, the usage of canon that we use when we're talking about, 
popular fiction, popular franchises comes from Holmes. It was a coined by a, a Sherlock Holmes scholar by the name of Ronald Knox in 1911 who took the you know, the biblical version of canon, like what's official and what's apocrypha, mm-hmm. the difference between that, to t- talk about how do you deal with all the stories that were written about after Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle died and also some of the ones that he wrote when he was alive that basically severely contradicted things that he had established earlier as part of the character because he wrote lots of one-off stuff that and stuff survived that never really got published. And then following his death in the intervening 100 plus years, people were rewriting the character and adding Sherlock Holmes characters into their story. Pastiches. Um, yes. I, I, was, uh, I read a mm. great uh, Mark Twain short story. Sherlock Holmes's nephew is in trouble in a mining town in America. And he comes in. And since it's a parody, he comes into town and thinks he has the, the murder solved. But there's another young kid who's basically a natural bloodhound who comes in and makes a total idiot of, him, of himself. And it's basically proving how much of an arrogant asshole Sherlock Holmes is. It's great. It's, great. it's a great kind of, uh, you know, American satire that Mark Twain would do. But there's a, a whole ream of these things where people love the Holmes character so much that they wrote more adventures over and over. They included him in, in places. And there is, un, unlike Lucasfilm or unlike Paramount Pictures or whomever, there is no set organization that decides what's canon for Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is everyone's right now. And there's only there's only like, well... You've got Arthur Conan Doyle, and everything else is sort of nebulously, does it fit, doesn't it fit, do you care enough about the character to keep going, that sort of thing. And that's that, that is the prototype of canon. Yeah, I think that's what kind of gets into this discussion, too, the difference we have. I think it may be just psychologically or culturally, but certainly legally between the idea of a public domain character like Sherlock Holmes, where anybody can make a Sherlock Holmes movie or write a book and even mm-hmm. publish it. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, who I believe either wrote or directed Star Trek II, mm-hmm. wrote a book called The 7% Solution. That was the same guy? Yeah. Same guy. That was an amazing book. Yeah, that's a good one. And it's a book where uh, Sherlock Holmes teams up with Sigmund Freud. Right. And there's another book I've seen at work. I work at a used bookstore where Sherlock Holmes battles Dracula. (laughs) There is a really controversial story, um, a controversial story that came out in the 1980s where Sherlock Holmes was revealed to be Jack the Ripper. And oh, that, wow. that sent some fucking hackles cool. out. <laughs> People cool. got really angry about that one. But the character, what does or doesn't count? Well, what do you want to have count? Right. I mean, obviously, he can't both exist in Victorian England and the modern day, but the story and the character are pretty consistent between Arthur Conan Doyle well, and the version that Benedict Cumberbatch plays. Hmm. He's kind of a really question- smart prick. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question would be, why does it matter? <laughs> well, I, mean, I think that's the core of the canonicity problem yeah. is who I mean clearly a lot of people care yeah. but why do we care why do we have to have a fine you know it's, a definite yeah line? it's it's odd that people think that with all of this stuff you have to choose from there has to be sort of one the way that I talk about it is the definitive way and I think that's where a lot of arguments about what is canon and what is not canon begins Right. Oh, is just one person will say, well, I think so-and-so didn't die in this, I don't know, for example, crash of a spaceship somewhere. And one person will say, no, they really died. And then that's where it'll friendships end and knives are pulled. <laughs> I think a great example of this, you know, how flexible this stuff can be is there's someone who claims that Roddenberry told him that the Star Trek The Next Generation is more canon than the old series. Mm-hmm. Like he liked it better. Uh, and so he's like, yeah, we we can just throw out some of that stuff from the original series. Oh man, you know, that, if that's true, then Roddenberry threw down, I guess, 
I would say a troll hammer in the sense that <laughs> right. it can only be matched by George Lucas saying, yeah, Greedo shot first. <laughs> he always <laughs> shot first. <laughs> right. Oh, God. It's... Well, well, uh, on that point, though, um, as far as I, I'm more of an expert on canonicity for an expert, quote, unquote, on canonicity for Star Have Trek. A doctorate in Star than... Trekosity. <laughs> yes. Um, I do know that uh, there were some substantial continuity issues within the TOS. And of course the animated series was kind of this redheaded stepchild that no one wanted to adopt when it came to time to discussions of canonicity and um, Roddenberry himself. And then what he passed along to the writers before he died of TNG was essentially a, a kind of a working, how would you put it? A rule of thumb way of dealing with canon, which is um, we pretty much respect the things that are there. We also know that there are known contradictions that we've written into the show, and we just try to keep it the, keep the ship as steady as possible as it goes along. And of course, with any franchise that's sufficiently large enough, that gets harder and harder when you keep going. Mm-hmm. That really gets hard. And for me, that's probably one of the bigger reasons behind why Star Trek TV, the TV shows, which I love dearly, um, really just started withering is that uh when you get you got to keep that ship floating and it's now so overburdened with shit that you got to keep balancing eventually it's just going to sink to the bottom of the ocean so so i was just on the wikipedia page before probably an hour ago before doing the show for star trek uh canon and what it mentions is previously the website the sort of star trek.com oh, yes. website yes mentioned their canon rules sort of what was canon what isn't and now it no longer has any statements about canonicity. Yes. Yeah. And at it, all. And, and that's, I think, I, I think that is a, I would, I, I'd, I'd hesitate. I'm just, this is my speculation hat. I think it's just about them not wanting to talk anything about canon now that the Abrams verse is, is there. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have to deal with that. Of course, the people see, who care about it are doing. It's a timeline, though. I mean, they it, don't have to worry about canon there. It, it, it is on, on a separate timeline, but they just want to be able to, they don't want anything to get in the way of the fact of making a movie that will make a billion dollars internationally. <laughs> and so if one thing is just saying that canon doesn't matter anymore, then that's one thing they're going to do. And does anyone really want to referee fights on the internet between angry nerds? <laughs> because... other, other nerds do. Yeah, other nerds love <laughs> to do that. Did you used to do that, Mike? The arch nerd. Oh, I did. I used to be a moderator in a comic book message board. Oh. And that's actually one of the things that comes up is I actually encountered a situation where if you want to talk about just impotent, angry, socially, I don't even want to say awkward because awkward doesn't even begin to touch it. Just nerdity that makes you almost uncomfortable and go, oh, God, this is exactly how people see us. <laughs> and I was the moderator on a message board dedicated to the Incredible Hulk on comic book resources. And for a character whose main purpose in the story is to get angry and break shit, <laughs> I had I had uh, people on my board, regulars, who were remarkably well-mannered and intelligent and polite and frequently I wouldn't have to deal with any sort of moderator issues unless we had an interloper come on and get angry. And usually the situation would be diffused by the time I logged on, which was frankly nice. And it made my job a lot easier. And there's a scenario in particular where the, uh, Dan Slott, who is one of the nicest guys working in comic books. He's a writer. He currently writes for both Silver Surfer, and his big thing is Spider-Man. Hmm. He is the head writer on all things Spider-Man for Marvel Comics right now. The nicest fucking person in any kind of writing medium that I have ever encountered. Just incredibly patient, incredibly kind, wants to interact with the fans, and when people get angry with him, he goes into Zen mode, and he can talk to them and say, well... 
hold on a minute here and try to talk to them reasonably and get them into a place where they're friendly. So Dan Slott, at the time, was writing She-Hulk, which was relevant to my board. So I, he came on, and I'm like, wow, this is great. I get a person who's writing a Marvel comic book regularly coming on to the message board that I'm moderating. This is great for traffic. It's great for interactions. I get to talk to somebody who's writing a book that was awesome. His run on She-Hulk was a lot of fun. And immediately this asshole jumps down his throat on this perceived slight on the honor of Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> there had been in the issue of She-Hulk a group shot of the Avengers, which She-Hulk had been a past member of. And the group shot did not include Ant-Man. And that was a bridge too far, sir. And this guy actually said at one point, if I don't defend Ant-Man, who will? <laughs> and throughout all of this, Dan Slott was incredibly kind. He says, actually, I've got an Ant-Man related story coming up in She-Hulk. Calm down and wait to see how you like this. Actually, it was pretty cool coming up. Hmm. But it was amazing how visceral and nasty and I refer to this guy privately among the moderators as Ant-Man's lawyer. <laughs> but I think that there is a, an element in fandom, especially on the Internet, where people take these arguments and the result of these arguments, especially if somebody who's in an official media capacity who owns the property comes in to moderate and arbitrate on this, like come out there with a thumb on the side before going up or down. <laughs> they think that... I don't know. Maybe it's just the Internet's gotten uglier, but it's this weird necessity. And I think it's a fan impulse to want to try to make sense of everything. They want it mm. to fit together. But there's also a collector and completist mentality that comes mm. up. And mm. one of them is this idea that I've invested in this. I right. spent the time reading that book. I spent the time loving these characters. So this shit better count. Right. And if you throw it out now, what has that been for? What has it all been for? <laughs> and it's, it's insane. And well, I think we're starting to see that with Star Wars now, which is, this is the big question. Those fans who, since 1991, have got to build a world. And this is a real difference, I think, between Star Wars and Star Trek. 99% of the expanded universe stuff that we see for every m property out there for every series. And what we're talking about is it kind of comes down to two different kinds of expanded universe. One is lost episodes. Mm -hmm. The idea that this is a standard story that begins and ends in the normal status quo. And this is like episodes of Star Trek that weren't made into TV shows or movies, but are just stories that begin and end with Kirk and Spock at the head of the Enterprise. Right. And we're going through space, and it begins with us picking up a diplomat and going somewhere or going to a planet and stuff happens. Right. And the other one is prequels or sequels to certain stories or characters. Like, we want to know, what did Khan do that made him rise to power? Mm -hmm. Who is Gary Seven? Flashbacks or sequels to, say, Star Trek Four. There's a book they put out called Probe, which is about mm -hmm. that alien probe, the one that looks like the ho-ho with the volleyball <laughs> on it. <laughs> and how it came to Earth and wanted to talk to whales. And it's like, okay, what happens with that thing now that it flies off? What is that thing? Let's do some backstory on it. Right. So you're either fleshing in on a, a stuff. A lot of those are written by William Shatner himself. Oh, no, I'm God. Joking. Actually, a lot <laughs> of them a, are. He did a few. <laughs> and do of course, not get me started on actors writing Star Trek novels, because I have like this one. Yeah, don't. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> so the, the other one is the Star Wars model. Star yes. Wars did something very different. It wasn't just, here's another adventure of Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and Princess Leia getting one over on the Empire. It isn't just fitting an extra story into that trilogy somewhere. What they would do is they would say, well, what happened next? We would have characters age. They would have children. They'd get married. People would die. 
the overall status quo of the universe would change. So at the end of these novels, after 30-something years of being uninterrupted, these characters are in a very different place than they were when Timothy Zahn first started writing these books. Mm-hmm. I can I don't know. I my I mentioned Star Trek novels a minute ago. I, I've been reading a lot of Star Trek novels recently that kind of buck that trend and continue this. They have a lot of post-canon, especially mm-hmm. because I've been reading DS9 novels and it all all the post-canon happens in the aftermath of the Dominion War. Hmm. And it's like, OK, well, where did these characters go after, I don't know, their planet was burned to a crisp? And it continues the storyline from there. Hmm. That's so, true. I've heard that that has happened. I know that, uh, Casey, you said that there were some books. Yeah, Titan. Around, they, yes. fo- they follow uh, Riker on Titan. I know that there was also a a four-issue, this was in anticipation of the 2009 Star Trek movie, um, Bob Orsi and Kurtzman kind of co-authored a basically a quadrilogy of stories that helped tie in the end of the TNG movie era to the new movie by adding... Spock, because Spock's the bridge, right? It's prime Spock is the bridge. Um, and they def- that was definitely expanded universe type shit. That was like, we're going to tell you what happened to these characters. Hey, Data comes back. Yay! Becomes the captain of the Enterprise. Yay! And then, and then they bridge the gap of like, oh, Spock, why does Nero know who Spock is? Well, they, they fill in that entire story so they can give you that critical bit of what are the characters doing right now? And how does this make sense in the, in the grander universe? And then with the Titan stuff, they have Riker going off and having his own fun adventures on his own ship. So I'm sorry so, to go on a bit of a tangent because of that, but have you guys heard of the idea of headcanoning? No. Headcanons mm-hmm. yeah. are, yeah, okay, somebody knows what I'm talking about. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's when you have a gap. It can. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a gap in the plot or an inconsistency, like the idea that, well, Data was dead, now what's going to happen? And the books are what remedy that for the people in an expanded universe, mm-hmm. often that happens and you have no expanded universe to fulfill that role for you. Mm. So headcanoning is you go, okay, well, I'm going to go, go ahead and invent a theory that develop, mm. that puts a hole in that plot hole mm. or fills that plot hole. So an example might be, okay, well, the reason Nero and Data know each other is that they were members of the same Bunko Club back in the 1980s or something. Right. That would, it could be a ridiculous headcanon, right. but it, it's still an example of like a way to fulfill that. Right. And there are people that subsequently something for the expanded universe will show up and they go, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and stick with my headcanon. I don't think it works. Well, a lot of times headcanon has to do with Making the story fit what you'd like the story to be. Yes. Um, I do know that sometimes people do headcanons with, like, you know, gender and uh, ethnicity and things like that. And so that that's where, you know, it fits the kind of story you'd like to see in the world because, you know, frankly, a lot of the stories out there are sort of come from a very specific point of view that doesn't necessarily appeal to everyone. And so, you know, you've integrated the, the story into your your new headcanon, and then anything that comes along that threatens that, you're like, oh, well, I'm just won't, not going to watch that. It's going to... That's that's <laughs> interesting, gonna because... Or I I've, don't accept it. Yeah. I'm familiar with the idea of, like, gender swap or race swap or that kind of thing, but when I see those, it's it seems kind of implicit to me that people will embrace those as a headcanon, but they won't make it exclusive to the actual canon that exists. So mm. that's that's interesting. I haven't come across that before. I think I do this a little bit with Star Wars because I, I mean, I've pretty much established on the show how I feel about the Star Wars prequels. Right. They're not fun and they made me not want to watch Star Wars for like 10 years. Mm. <laughs> so when I watch the originals, of course, they're going to have Obi-Wan and other characters will reference stuff in the past like, oh, I used to know your father, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I have cauterized 
that trilogy off from the rest of the prequels. I have basically just on both ends of it and said, when they are talking about uh, their time being friends as Jedi and growing up and trying to train him, I explicitly make myself not visualize Hayden Christensen (laughs) and Ewan McGregor. And I say a different past happened that looked different and different things happened. I don't know necessarily what they were, but it wasn't what we were given in the official quote unquote canon Mm -hmm. that Lucas created. And then later Disney codified, I guess. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Will Wheaton do that on his show. He refuses to acknowledge the existence of the prequels. You know, and he mentions it. He'll be like, wait, wait we're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, why, why dwell on something? Exist. And well, I think that that's something that fans do. And there's a certain degree of fans. And like Ant-Man's lawyer is one of them <laughs> where he can't acknowledge that any of this stuff didn't happen. And if it violates that or if it hurts the thing in his head, he's going to get angry and rail against it rather than the healthy adult thing of just ignoring it, mm. just cutting it off. To be fair, making those sort of restrictions and scope make a lot of sense when... What was it you were talking about? The ship has so much going on that it becomes a trash barge and flo- like right. sinks, basically. Right. You have to be able, if an expanded universe like Star Wars or Star Trek is so huge as it is, and there are bits of, I know at least in the Star Trek books, that con- actively contradict each other. Sure. So you have to be able to limit your scope in some way because otherwise, A, you're going to get people like Ant-Man who are, or Ant-Man's lawyer who's going nutty, and then you, you'll you be able to have a cogent conversation about what's going on without having to bring in 15 other different works. And I think that it's also coming from the place that the Star Trek ones, even in the ones that you guys have mentioned, don't necessarily lay down the law to the people who come on as writers and say, you have to acknowledge all this stuff, that this is part of trying to fit into an elaborate timeline. That Star Trek, for the most part, doesn't try to say, this is the year this story happens in. You just look at the cover and, okay, well, Kirk and Spock have the gold and blue uniform, so it must happen at some point (laughs) during the original series. You don't know when, but there isn't like a specific year that they try to hold it to and say, okay, well, clearly he's going to run into his illegitimate son, David, so David has to be exactly this old, or I'm going to get really angry on the internet about it. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. There isn't a need to meticulously do it, and it wasn't necessarily that Star Wars fans did this. I think it was that Lucasfilm itself created the sort of timeline that was elaborate and was comprehensive in a way that I've really not seen for almost any franchise. And it might be a function of, and I actually want to get Ryan's take on this, it might actually, the difference between that, you're saying sort of filling in the holes versus expanding on both ends of the existing story, might that be a main function of just how little actual canon there was at the end of 1982, at the end of the three movies? Like, there really isn't much to go along. Yeah. No. Well, my understanding was that the entire expanded universe concept came from the fact that they wanted to write novels that that extended the story. Hmm. You know, and the entire canon system behind the Star Wars universe that up until you know April two thousand fourteen was real. You know that that tiered system that came totally out of the novels, out of the the people putting together the novels, and so that was a it, it was sort of a planned situation. They needed to be able to say, oh, well, this is this is what this is, and then this is their kids. I mean, they wanted to have some time mapped out. And then I think the video games have added to that, in particular the, the Knights of the Old Republic system, where they had sort of, they were like, well, we don't want to mess with the canon too much. So they said it, you know, between three and 4,000 years prior to the Battle of Yavin. So that ends up fleshing out in the end, you know, because other people wrote novels that were prior 
to the movies. And so eventually you're fleshing out a massive timeline with these novels and video games where, I mean, we really can talk about everything that happened. Well, in particular because those video games said they were about history. They were sort of semi-archaeological. And so we were discovering this 25,000-year-old, you know, uh, civilization in that galaxy. And and might that also, too, be a a function of how your uh, extended universe, your your official, your, I like to call it, officially licensed fan fiction, because I think that's what this is, um, (laughs) is that the Star Wars always looks back, is, is always looking back, whereas Star Trek is looking forward. And there's a different way in which you will write a story if you know you're making, if it is history, right? If it's like, this happened mm-hmm. a long time ago and... In a galaxy far, far away. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, it, but not just the idea, not just the slug line that has there, but also there's a, that makes it more epic, right? Oh, the, the things that happened cascaded right. and led to this thing that happened, that led to this thing that happened, and therefore it's significant, which is the way that we think we tend yeah, to think about history. Yeah, I think you're right in that sense. In that, in Star Wars is a legend. It is a, a and where whereas, uh, and that's sort of what that's what they're calling the extended universe yes, now. Legends. legends. <laughs> um, so it's, sad. You know, these are legendary stories. Yeah, you're right in that sense about heroes. And I mean, like, <sighs> to go into sci- sci-fi. I mean, Star Wars is not really sci-fi. It's I mean, <laughs> oh, a fight just started on the internet. Dun, 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 dun. It's, about, it's about knights and wizards and stuff. Right. Whereas Star Trek is, and so I think that's that's why Star Trek feels more forward-looking, is that it's about the future of, of of the human race. I think the difference between the expanded universes you get with Star Trek and Star Wars and. I, I want to be a bit broader than this in this discussion than just right. these two franchises. No, they're the only two that exist. But I think the contrast <laughs> is... What? <laughs> I think the contrast is really good between the two of them because you look at how these stories were told. Star Trek is primarily a TV show, and Star Wars is primarily a series of movies. And because a TV show happens more gradually and you're able to have smaller stories mixed into the big ones, and Star Wars was always about big stories, big epic battles... So you don't know what the name of Lando's co-pilot, the little mousy-looking guy with the jowls in Return of the Jedi. You don't know what his name is. You don't know what his species is. Until... Ryan, what, what is his name? I actually don't know. I've oh, seen... I know his name. I know his name. It's Nyen Nub, and he's a Solistan. You know how I know that? Because, he's Celestian. Yeah, I used to own the uh, Star Wars role-playing game from West End Games, which apparently was the point at which Timothy Zahn said, okay, this stuff hasn't been written in Star Wars. It's just a weird monster-looking guy who talks funny. <laughs> what is he? And they already had this stuff written out. They said, here you go, push these books towards Timothy Zahn, base it on this. And that became it because you don't know what Yoda is. I mean, Yoda's a major Star Wars character. You don't know what the name of his species is. In Star- well, we still don't, really. I yeah, mean. we still don't. I guess George Lucas made it a rule that you couldn't answer that question. Yeah. Hmm. But... <laughs> It's like in his will. I think there's like a dead man switch that destroys all of Star Wars. If if somebody says the name of his species. Oh, oh, oh. we really should bring up Stu John here then. This is this is important. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Stu John this was is... like my neighbor when I was raised in the trailer park five years ago. <laughs> Stu John. <laughs> Stu John. Uh, so basically what happened was there was a, uh, there was a panel... And uh, George Lucas, you know, was asked, what is the homeworld of Obi-Wan Kenobi? And Jon Stewart, like from The Daily Show, was on the panel. And I guess Lucas looked over at him and he's like, it's, it's Stu John. And Lucas said this, so it's canon. Oh. Like, that's canon. 
There you go. Named it after John Stewart. <laughs> See, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Whatever. I, I'm also so happy that I'm not into Star Wars because I would have to heed to weird bullshit like that. There are actual dwarf <laughs> planets and asteroids that are named after like Xena Warrior Princess and other TV shows. So I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> that has a precedent in real life. But I guess when we're getting down to it, that stuff isn't written where even George Lucas has to make it up. Star Trek is not like that. Star Trek mm. has all of this stuff worked out. Like, we know what the god of the Vulcans or whatever in ancient times, like Shakari, we know. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. <laughs> and we know that every seven years, Spock goes through Ponfar, and we know what that he has to fight some guy with that scythe pontoon thing, <laughs> or, you know, have sex or he's going to die. And we know what the Romulans are. We know what the name of their leaders are. We know mm. their system of government. We know way more than we need to about the Klingons. Right. And we know that because of the way it's written. So when I'm going to write a Star Trek novel, all of this stuff is official canon. All of this stuff is indisputed. All of this stuff is in the original medium. And you notice that there's, I mean, it was Roddenberry, but he's gone, so it's not so much anymore. There's no. no definitive authority that you have to have say something and then it becomes law. And I think even in this case, I think this may be with Roddenberry, the refutation of that is at the end, Roddenberry, to a lot of writers who still love and revere him, people like Ronald D. Moore, who later went on to reboot Battlestar Galactica, has said that a lot of the restrictions that Roddenberry put on their show made it harder to write because he suddenly was caught up in this idea that he wasn't just creating a science fiction show that was about ideas. He was creating this worldview, this philosophy, and he didn't want his characters to fight like mm. Spock and McCoy well, did. Well, you, you brought up Ron D. Moore. He wrote DS9. Exactly. Yeah. Which was like a huge refutation of a lot of the stuff that Roddenberry stood for. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of stuff where it, some of the best material actually breaks from the founder of and creator of the series. And I think we can all have that same break when we look at the Star Wars prequels, that there's no denying that he was the chief george lucas that is he was the chief creative person the sole creative person creating those and people have a problem with those movies and still debate and argue about them to this day well and, and to to just bolster your point there was just a story I, I i wish i would have remembered where the source came from probably from disney that essentially said that the the material for star trek 7 8 and 9 were not previously written story materials from Lucas. So they're wholly originally created by the new writers. And the top response on Reddit was, in capital letters, good. Yeah. <laughs> like, Damn. like fucking A, right? You know, <laughs> with the, like, despite the fact That's that it's all consensus. created, it's all created by George Lucas, so it's all of his ideas, right? So we can set that out of the way. But interestingly enough, like, you die the hero or live long enough to, to see yourself become the villain. Right. Yeah. Am I right? St Roddenberry died and passed it on, and and therefore um, he didn't be the, he was not the persona that had to assume all of this stupid shit that eventually comes along when it runs on too long and when and you make poor decisions. Whereas Lucas, he was the edifice for all of that and took it upon himself. But to to George Lucas's credit, he did say, "Well, I'm going to let the games and the books be their and the comic books be their own sort of thing, and I'm just going to worry about my world, and they're going to worry about their world, and never the twain shall meet." But that's when you get into that wall of fans who want their stuff to count. They want references in the comics and in the novels and in the video games to be threaded throughout the prequels. Right? Where is you know Joris Sabaoth? Where is he? Mm. In the Clone mm. Wars. And why mm -hmm. isn't the Clone Wars in this movie the same way that was kind of described yeah. in the Thrawn novels? Right. Because the main stuff, I guess you could say the A canon, 
you know, I'm sorry, but millions of people are going to see the Star Wars movie. Thousands of people are going to read the Star Wars books. And it's unreasonable to have to throw movie watchers who outnumber the book readers by, God, like 10 to 100 times to can, one. Can I pose a question to you guys? And it's not necessarily a Star Warsy, Star Trekky thing. It's general sort of fandom. Do you think that people who kind of have that, well, you need to be throwing in these references to so-and-so from obscure bit of the expanded universe or whatever, do you think that that might be kind of a form of gatekeeping? It's exactly a form of gatekeeping. Okay. This is what it is, where it's just, you're not good enough to like this thing. And it goes back to that sort of the the Venn diagram, if you will, of like what is a casual fan versus what is like a hardcore fan that or a fan that only likes a specific part of the universe and so on. And I... Just I don't know. I had a bit of a revelation while you guys were talking about this because I never realized that different people's interpretation of canon can be um, excluding, which yeah, is kind of interesting. I guess my question would be how you feel, Mike, as a comics guy. And I think we've probably talked about this at some point with what you were just saying about you know the movies because it's got a larger audience being more canonical with say the Marvel movies. I mean, is that more canon now than the comics? It can be, because I've noticed that when certain things become really popular in the more popular medium, because there's more people watching the movies than reading the comics, obviously, that stuff starts to change in the comics, that st people start to draw Tony Stark to look a little bit more mm. like Robert Downey Jr., mm. and also they changed out Nick Fury in the comics so that he looks like Samuel L. Jackson now. Mm. Sure. So these and that are, seems very intentional. I just wonder from the fan point of view, as opposed to from the writer point of view, I think is that... that I think that you can reconcile those two things as long as you come up with a – because the comics, sadly, in my opinion, are still written to a hardcore collector mindset and often cater to them in a way that is exclusionary to anyone who even really loves these characters. This has been long time. My real problem with Marvel and DC – I think Marvel to a much lesser extent now than DC Comics, but the idea that you have to know this much about these characters – to be able to understand what's going on in their stories right now. And then mm. I could be a real big X-Men fan, and I am, but I couldn't tell you what the fuck is happening in X-Men comics nowadays because it's just so much of a, an, just an unnecessary labyrinth of canonical minutia. And I think in a weird sort of way, I wouldn't necessarily consider the movies to be expanded universe because I think for my own personal definition, I'd say, what is the foundation for what? And I think that what is it that we're using to say this all happened and I'm writing sequels and carry-ons from that. So when I write a Star Trek novel, clearly Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek, the next generation is a big part of that. Like that stuff all happened, the way those characters look and act and their history from that TV show goes right into mine where I'd say the Marvel movies are an adaptation where I'm taking something and changing it much in the way that, say, the Sherlock TV show mm. takes the original books of Arthur Conan Doyle, mm. where I sort of pull the, the essence of this thing out, and I take it and I change it up and I make it more relevant to somebody who is a, encountering it for the first time and trying to show people who don't already know it how cool it can be. And I think that's what they've really done with those Marvel movies. I like that there's an occasional Easter egg, but those Easter eggs should never get in the way of a new fan enjoying it. They should never be a barrier to understanding or getting the most out of it. It should be an extra thing 
that a hardcore fan goes, hey, that's kind of cool, but it's like a dog whistle. Everyone else just doesn't hear it. And if you pull that off, it can be good. Hmm. But if you make it where it becomes a necessity, a litmus test for even enjoying the movie, then it becomes a problem. Hmm. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I as, as someone who really enjoys those movies and wants to get into the comics, I really find exactly what you're talking about, where there's this massive barrier. It's as though... I mean, they're not even in the same universe, not just in terms of canon, but in terms of, like, the headspace of the creators, hmm. where they're just like, right, this, these are our fans. And it's like, look at, look at the millions of fans you could have if you just stop making this a labyrinth. Actually, Trek does this really well, because yeah. it has sort of a core way of doing it. You can't walk into Trek after having seen, you know, a couple episodes and, and be lost on the next one. And granted, it's fairly episodic and it's sort of like stories but boy i mean <laughs> you know, comic books are just like off the map in terms of that labyrinth right. oh yeah there's and the way star wars deals with that particular problem is that they just set everything up like it's an epic poem right and so you're expecting the hero to do the Campbellian hero's journey and so right. you you you, yeah. you can appreciate it in the same way that you could appreciate reading beowulf although i mean there's good and there's even, beowulf. it's not hard <laughs> Like, if I were to just jump into a Star Wars novel that I had no context for, it's like, well, these are the Sith and these are the Jedi. I can figure it out. Red right. lightsaber bad, pretty, blue lightsaber good. <laughs> but It's pretty upfront. To pull this out of just Star Trek Star Wars and into something I think Rosalind can sink her teeth into, I think, to me, the best example of how you do expanded universe stuff and how you make a universe both in the A canon and the expanded universe approachable is done by Doctor Who. Hmm. And we haven't really done Doctor Who on this show yet, and we will get to it, I promise. Or will we? <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the things that a lot of fans may not realize about Doctor Who is that the show went on for like 30 years from the 60s up until the late 80s, and then it was canceled. So the thing that kept that show alive for a very long time was its expanded universe. And then there was a TV movie that was supposed to be a backdoor pilot that introduced a new incarnation of the Doctor. It didn't work out. And the really interesting thing was, until that show got rebooted in 2005, that actor, Paul McGann, was the quote-unquote incumbent Doctor. And there is more expanded universe stuff written about that version of the character who has only two hours of actual screen time in live action hmm. than any other doctor out there, including Tom Baker, the guy with the scarf that everyone recognizes. And one of the things that was really cool, considering that I've never seen any other franchise do it, is a lot of this expanded universe stuff is through radio drama. So... You can get actors that have played these characters in the past, and clearly people age, people die, but people's voices mostly stay the same. And you can get actors who haven't played the role in 20 years to come back and play the Doctor, their version of the Doctor, in a radio play. And 90% of them are Paul McGann, this one-eighth version of the Doctor. And one of the really cool things that happened in the lead-up to the 50th anniversary of the show was they did a short prequel that had his doctor come back in live action for the first time in almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And in his dialogue, canonized a number of characters mm -hmm. that had only appeared in radio dramas. And somewhere out there, fans' heads were exploding. <laughs> <laughs> and it was never done in a way that was off-putting or gatekeeper-y. But there were certain people who go, suddenly this stuff is part of the canon. It's not part of this weird mythos off in the corner here. That stuff happened or some version of it happened. And 
it was really kind of neat. And I haven't even seen the radio dramas. I know, Rosalind, you're a big fan of the Doctor Who. You mean you've listened? You haven't listened to the radio dramas? I If you just stared at the radio dramas, I would would pity you on so many levels. (laughs) That's why it wasn't playing. (laughs) There we go. It's staring at it. You stared at it and it burst into flames after a while. I break everything I touch. So, Rosalind, I know you were a fan of of the radio dramas, and I know that one of the things that they did that was really interesting was the sixth incarnation of the Doctor, played by Colin Baker, is one of the, let's just say, not popular incarnations, that he had a horrible gaudy suit and bad writing, and I've heard that the radio dramas really rehabilitate his character. The the great thing about the radio dramas is, A, the storytelling was a lot tighter, so people that would turn on an average, you know, Doctor Who story that was from like the 80s or 70s, the stuff with Fourth Doctor is a lot more widely recognized, but it drags. It's not something that the modern, you know, person who has watched the stuff, the newer um, version of Doctor Who would really sink their teeth into. So I think that the radio dramas kind of, a lot of the radio dramas were on before the new series started, but... It was kind of a good primer to the earlier Doctors, and the stories were presented in a very enjoyable way. And you could pick and choose what Doctor you wanted to listen to. So you'd have Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor, would have a story about werewolves. And you go, all right, werewolves. And then there would be, there is the sense of redeemability, especially with Colin Baker's Doctor, because... I think did he? I think he only got one season of the TV show. Uh, two he? seasons. He got and two? he was actually the only Doctor who's been fired from the show. I did not know hmm. that. When he regenerated into the later incarnation, they didn't actually have him on set because he's like, "Fuck this noise! I don't want any part of being treated badly like this." So it's Sylvester McCoy in a curly blonde wig doing the regeneration. That's really depressing, <laughs> it especially is. because Colin Baker, like now he's older and he like is so lighthearted about it because he he was in. When the 50th anniversary showed up, him and um, the other two doctors were like in this sort of mini special about how they were trying to get into the 50th anniversary thing. Did you see that? Yes, the five-ish doctors. It was actually a lot of fun. It was was hilarious. Written and directed by Peter Davison. Nice. (laughs) So it was a lot of cool stuff in there. But yeah, the, the radio dramas and I think the Doctor Who novels to an extent kind of if you didn't have the attention span or you didn't feel like it was a generation of television that you could identify with when you were watching the earlier Doctors, the Expanded Universe kind of presented a good alternative to it. Yeah, and the cool thing is that you can use characters. And then you were talking about this sort of before. If an actor doesn't want to come back or if an actor can't come back because they're deceased, like, say, DeForest Kelly can't play Bones McCoy on Star Trek anymore, or if they don't want to come back, like Christopher Eccleston played the Ninth Doctor, he doesn't seem to want to come back in any capacity. You can still tell stories, like there's a new comic book series that are coming out in Doctor Who where there's a series of Ninth Doctor comics. There's a series of Tenth, Eleventh, Twelfth Doctor comics. And actors don't have to want to come back or can't come back. Like, unfortunately, the first three people who've played the Doctor are deceased. But I can still write a story about John Pertwee's Third Doctor. And... You can. They're also, I mean, to be fair for Doctor Who, they also recast the first Doctor back in the 80s when they wanted to do one with all five of them. That's and, true. And it worked okay. I mean, and sadly, Tom Baker didn't come back from that. And he was played by the role of a mannequin <laughs> in those roles. There's the shots where all of them are standing together and there's this one creepy mannequin that looks like Tom Baker. Tom Baker's already kind of a weird guy. He's all eyes and hair and teeth. And <laughs> to see a mannequin of that can be really off-putting. I thought during the Five Doctors, there was like a recycled bit of footage that never made it into the key to time, and they just re- like threw in some bad. Do you CG. mean they didn't have enough? Uh, they didn't have enough budget to make like a 
digitally digital version of uh, Pertwee or something like that. In, oh, you're talking in like 1983. No, like Tron Legacy. You know where you get their face and they do, they're really weird. They don't look like they're moving at all, but they are moving. And so, so clearly, you don't familiar with the sort of budget that we had for <laughs> 1980s Doctor Who. <laughs> it was a piece of cheese and despair at I the see. BBC, probably. So, can I ask a question? Because I think Doctor Who's a great example of this. I think an important question to ask about sort of these expanded universes is why is it that we want the same stuff over and over again instead of, Ah. (laughs) you know what I mean? Like we could be reading 20 different fictional universes instead of just three or four or whatever, multiply that. But you know what I mean? And, and and interestingly enough, I got it. We got into Mike, you and I, and I believe Sam was a side participant, got into an argument, this is last year sometime, about, uh, it might have started with Star Wars. It was basically about what happens when you're a writer and you're writing in someone else's universe and you're not a licensed writer, like you're a fan fiction writer or something, and then they bring the hammer down on you. Um, and I think you were probably relating this more to comic book writers than to film and TV. But you, your point was basically, you want, if you want to write something that's good and have it have legs and own it, don't muck around in other people's universes. Write your own thing. Like, and that eliminates the problem. And then my response, and I think Sam's response was, well, don't you think that at a certain point of time, just like Sherlock Holmes, these universes and these characters live in everyone? And so it's not really fair for Paramount Corporation to come in and throw the hammer down on you and say, fuck you. You'll never be able to publish this no matter how good it is and no matter how much people like it. If you don't play by our terms or if we just don't want to, fuck you. Get out of here. And not even that, but the canon presentation of the way a character is is great. But after a while, because that character will live on in the general consciousness of the culture around you, like everybody knows who Spock is. You could have never seen an episode of Star Trek in your life. You're going to know who Mm -hmm. Spock is. But and this is unfortunately why I was in the beginning, really looking forward to the J.J. Abrams stuff because it was an interpretation of that character that was new and it was a way that I never would have seen it before. And that's kind of why I think that fan fiction or licensed stuff even can be useful, not only as an exercise as a writer, but just for the public to see something new that they haven't seen from that character before. I would say that my position has changed a little bit, Casey, since we had that conversation. In other ways, it hasn't. One is I want more stuff. And this is where I think Ryan is absolutely right, which is there needs to be more new stuff. I mean, there was a time at which RoboCop and Total Recall and Back to the Future and all of these things were new. Star Wars was new at some point. Can you Mm -hmm. believe that at one point, Star Wars, the entirety of it was just one movie? Mm -hmm. It was just a two-hour experience. And once you were done with it, there was no other Star Wars unless you rewound it and watched it again. Mm -hmm. So... There was a time when that was new before it got big. I want to see the creation of new big things that are interesting. And instead of recycling something, like we have recycled RoboCop in a forgettable way, Total Recall in a forgettable way. And every day at work, I see us buy a DVD from some customer selling into the store that is a remake that I forgot had existed because it just wasn't memorable. <laughs> so I would right. love to see more new stuff. And I think that stuff is being created. As a comic book fan, the company Image Comics is creating amazing new things that are owned by their creators. Hmm. Great new worlds, characters, concepts, and there's amazing stuff out there. And I'm thrilled with it. But at the same time, I still love characters like Batman and Spock and Han Solo. I still want to see stories about them, too. So on one level, yeah, I do want people to write their own new stuff, but I'm not as hard on fan fiction as I used to be. Hmm. And honestly, I know, especially for people who do fan fiction or fan art, 
they don't become established widely on the internet until they're known for something that's a fan work. Like, mm. I know people who were completely, like, nobodies on a specific website, and then they drew something that was Doctor Who, it got five million, you know, notes on Tumblr or likes on Facebook or whatever, and that allowed the person to develop enough of a fan base where, A, they would get industry recognition if they wanted to become a well-known writer or mm-hmm. artist or whatever, and B, it, they already had people looking at their stuff because they went, oh, it's the guy that drew the 10th Doctor as, I don't know, a, a marmoset or whatever <laughs> that made them happy. Oh, I know that exists. <laughs> So, they, have well, like, they have rule 34 and rule 64 and all these rules. What's the one where you become an animal? Or, there's I don't be even a num- know. There's a number the furry, for that, I'm Fox sure. Fox furries. Rule, but I rule think 34F for yeah. furry. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But before we wrap up this conversation, I want to talk a bit about my favorite sci-fi franchise and how my fandom of it sometimes makes me a bit callous to screaming Star Wars fans. Hmm. And that, of course, is Planet of the Apes. I love Planet of the Apes so much. And I have seen the Planet of the Apes expanded universe through comics and novels get rebooted at least three times in the time I've been a hardcore fan since the early 90s. That's when I first became an Apes fan. I love the stuff they put out. Boom Studios, who currently hold the rights to do licensed comics for Planet of the Apes have done some amazing fucking things. They've done some great series. I love them. Um, they're now doing a series that's called Star Trek Planet of the Apes. <laughs> what? It, I saw this. Yeah. It's actually really fucking good. You know what the name of the uh, <laughs> subtitle to the series is? The Primate Directive. Oh, <laughs> kill me. And oh, no. The basic premise is that the Klingons have discovered a dimensional barrier, and because of the Arganian Treaty, they can't attack or expand their empire the way they used to. But they found a new universe, and that universe is, of course, the... <laughs> destroyed planet Earth, you know, populated by talking apes and mute, savage humans. Does this involve Cleons going and having sex and breeding with the Planet of the Apes apes? No, oh, okay. but if you look at later <laughs> editions of Star Trek, they clearly learned some fashion sense from the gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually one thing I really love that they do with this miniseries, of course, the crew, you know, of Kirk and Spock and everyone are watching this at sort of a distance where they want to stop the Klingons from interfering, but they don't want to change through the Prime Directive the history or destiny of this this planet. Mm -hmm. And Taylor, as played by Charlton Heston, is having none of that bullshit. (laughs) He doesn't understand why these people with their magic ray guns can't fucking overthrow Dr. Zaius and the apes, and he gets really fucking angry, and what I love is I can hear Heston's voice in every one of these tirades where he's screaming at Kirk, and Kirk being kind of like, whoa, hold on there, big fella, and Spock being Spock, and it's really, really good. I've never expected this to actually work out, because I was talking to our panel and friend Greg Hatcher about this, also a Star Trek fan, also an Apes fan. And we both came to the conclusion this is either going to be the most amazing thing that ever came out or it's going to be the biggest clusterfuck ever. (laughs) And it's amazing. Hmm. I'm really enjoying it. Only two issues have come out so far. But as an Apes fan, I'm so used to seeing alternate versions Hmm. of how did that happen. Like one of the big characters in the series that has become a favorite of any fan fiction slash licensed author is Dr. Milo, who is mm. played by Sal Minio, in only 10 minutes of screen time. <laughs> he doesn't time. last very long. <laughs> no, he has let, like a red shirt level lifespan yes. in the course of P- Escape from the Planet of the Apes. He gets strangled by a savage gorilla in the past, but that character, 
the sort of condescending scientist chimp, has become a mad favorite for every licensed uh, novelization and comic. And they've turned him into sort of Dr. House meets Nikola Tesla of the fake <laughs> future. And he becomes a major character in all of them. And I've seen three different stories that are about how he fixed Taylor's ship. Mm. And, fi- and it's all different. None of them are compatible with the others. They all go in a different direction. And you know what? I'm fucking fine with that. Interesting. I don't so need cool. to reconcile it. I don't need it to make sense because I know it's all going to be thrown out by the next writer who has their idea for how that happened. Hmm. Because really, the Planet of the Apes expanded universe is all headcanon. And Hmm. I want to take a quick break and we'll be right back with High Point Low Point. And we are back with Radio versus the Martians. We are talking expanded universes. And boys and girls, it is time for your favorite segment, High Point, Low Point, where we go to the top of the mountain, we go to the bottom of the barrel, and we are going to look at expanded universes. As always, we start low, we look low, and aim high. <laughs> we try at least. We're going to start with you, Casey. Expanded universes, what is the low point? Hmm. Uh, th- this is difficult because... My central thesis about my feelings towards expanded universes or are just, why don't you leave it alone? Like, that's that's generally my idea about something that's good. So my choice was the K.W. Jeter's Blade Runner sequel novelizations. And if you listen to our Blade Runners podcast, you heard me mention these very briefly. And I chose these because they exemplify what irks me the most. And it's this, what I like to call, original dependence. And that is the thing wherein... The author of the expanded universe feels the need to slavishly follow the characters, scenarios, and the themes, sometimes even the dialogue verbatim fr- from the original works. And in this way, that makes them so much less interesting of the stories because they do feel closer to fan fiction than they do actual new interesting stories in the same universe. The first book was called The Edge of Human and it's about where it follows where the first movie ends, where Deckard leaves to go to the country, and he's several years later, he's put Rachel in cryogenic suspension to slow down her eventual death, right? He doesn't want to, he can't let her go. And then he, he meets the real Rachel, which re, the real Rachel is Tyrell's niece, whose name is Sarah, and she's the templant. She's the replicant template for her. So, oh, you got another actual Rachel that's there that he gets to fall in love with. And that's just the beginning of the, its problems. All of the characters that you think that aren't there anymore return or and ones who have died. Like for example, JF Sebastian is a character in this. Why? <laughs> because he has to be in it. Pris and Roy Body are both alive. Why? Because they have to be in it, right? And it's ridiculous the plot is about like Sarah, which is the Rachel Templant trying to destroy Tyrell Corporation and some convoluted plot that was there. You get to the third book called Replicant Night, and it, the uh, the book is about Deckard is having a movie based on his life, and the, that that movie is the same events that were in the original Blade Runner. And Holden is out of the the Iron Lung, and he comes in, and he for some reason is on the st- soundstage at the same time they're refilming the Leon VK test scene, and he gets shot again. And this is this sounds ridiculous, but this is actually what passed muster. There is a briefcase that Deckard finds that has the personality of Roy Batty in it, an, an artificial intelligent briefcase. And apparently JF's, <laughs> J.F. Sebastian's essence has been diluted into a powdery nanotech substance that 
um, Deckard inhales, and he travels into a weird uh, psychedelic alternate universe Bradbury what? building where J.F. Sebastian still lives. Like now, my original thesis of the low point for Blade Runner was like these stories get so fucking stupid if you feel like you have to. We have to see the same story over again. No, sometimes we just leave it alone. And so for me, like the low points are this anxiety that oh my god, if we're gonna have to do another story, it has to be the same characters has the same themes and go through this whole thing where we show you exactly what you want and like the droids in the uh, the prequel trilogy right like no sometimes i just want to see something new i don't want to have to have exactly the same characters quote the same lines get in similar situations maybe i want to see something new that that's my low point roslyn i know you are really good at low points you like to aim really low what is the low point of expanded universe I just want to cut off the balls of every expanded universe I want to see. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. What? I'm not. I'm not that pessimistic about everything all the time. And all the time. <laughs> the thing about expanded universes that begins to great is within the fandom in particular, a lot of the time it's the main discussion that goes on to the point where I think fan works like fan fiction and fan art are really fun and i like the idea that sometimes people who are good enough at what they do on the internet late at night when no one is around can get license licensure and become a novel and i think that's really cool the thing is that once something like that is released the discussion that goes on on the internet is whether or not it's considered canon so the canonosity issue always comes up and people really harshly criticizing someone else's creativity instead of accepting it and i think that people have a habit of going, well, I it's easier for me to bitch about this, frankly, because it's part of an it's part of my universe that I'm such a big fan of. And I want everybody to just get along. <laughs> See? I'm not a misanthropic, terrible person. That was why I was a little taken aback when you said that. I, I think the low point for things like this for me is I, I want people to just kind of go, oh, that's cool. And maybe if they disagree, that's fine and present another viewpoint. But I have like lost internet friends over just asinine things that they they consider canon until they die usually minutia like bits of the past of a character that no one cares about and i will say well i I disagree and they go well you don't understand this is this is this is my baby the the fun one of the bits of internet slang when people are very dedicated to a particular character is trash son Like, this is my baby trash son. He's my little prince trash son. Quark, believe it or not, people refer to as a trash son a lot. He's like a fan favorite sort of terrible character, a problematic favorite, if you will. Like an Arnold Rimmer in Red Dwarf. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's there's archetypes like that everywhere. But people will say that, you know, I don't know, to stick with Arnold Rimmer, he has redeemable qualities and actually changes through the course of the series. No, he fucking doesn't. He's a terrible character the whole way through. He's self-serving and cowardly and blah, blah, blah. But if I stick with that opinion, there's a whole contingent of fans on the internet that would, like, bring up all these bits of expanded universes in the novels to refute it and then season that no one liked and this one itty bit of a YouTube video that they saw two and a half seconds of. Like, it it becomes so inundated with bullshit that after a while you have to take a step away. Hmm. You know, I was looking at this too, and it's really easy, especially when fan fiction becomes part of the topic, to point out the endless barrage of stories where Captain Kirk and Spock are centaurs that fuck each other. Oh, <laughs> or mermaids. Yeah, that, and you know what? I just got to push that stuff aside because I'm really on the same side as you here, Rosalind. For my low point, it's another thing. It's how fans act. And I think it's fans 
in that same defensive posture. Fans defending and pretending that plot holes and problems don't exist in the story. Yeah, fan and, discontinuity, right? Oh, God. Where yeah. It's almost like if they admit that there are plot holes or problems or issues with the story or that parts of it aren't good, mm -hmm. that it'll all be yanked away from them. It's kind of like saying, I don't believe in fairies and Peter Pan, and all the fans have to clap their hands to bring the franchise back to life. <laughs> Here's the thing. Everything has plot holes. Everything has problems. And being a fan in an adult way is acknowledging that and still being able to love this thing. One of the greatest films of all time, and this is one of the films that everyone feels obligated to put on all of the best film lists of all time, is Citizen Kane mm. by Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. It has a huge fucking plot hole in it that I didn't notice until somebody pointed it out to me last year, and here it is. This entire movie is built around the mystery of Charles Foster Kane's mysterious last words, Rosebud. And here's the problem. While everyone is hunting around trying to figure out what he meant, what is Rosebud? Is it a person? Is it a place? What is this thing? What did he mean? They forget that he said it when he was alone and whispering it to himself in the middle of his mansion <laughs> and that nobody recorded it and nobody should know he even said it. But you know what? It doesn't ruin the movie for me. I'll give you another one. And this is one that I know is a gauntlet at the feet of a lot of angry keyboard warriors out there. <laughs> it's Star Wars. The original Star Wars is a great movie, but it has a massive plot hole in it. And here's it is. The climax of the movie all comes around the idea that the Death Star, this giant space station that can destroy a planet with its super green laser is coming for the rebel base. They're on a moon, and they're coming for them. So there's this race against time where they're launching spacecraft to battle it and attack its tiny little weak point and blow it up before it can kill all the people on that moon. And the reason that it's a race against time is because the Death Star can't get a clear shot at the rebel base. Why can't it get a shot at the rebel base with its planet-destroying laser? Because a planet is in the way. <laughs> <laughs> And you know why I didn't notice this plot hole? Because the movie is so exciting and it's so hmm. tense and it's so fun that it distracts me from that. The reason we notice plot holes a lot of the time is because the movie is not good enough or engaging enough to distract us from them. So I mention these plot holes to fans all the time. And Star Wars fans, when I mention the problem of the plot-destroying laser, rather than laughing and going, oh my god, I didn't even notice that, they go into defense mode. They immediately start doing essentially fictional apologetics to try to make it still make sense. Well, how do you know? It might have been a, a, a gas giant. You don't know how those lasers work on gas giants. You don't know. Maybe their laser would take a long time to recharge. And I start getting this litany of of people trying to defend it because they think that I've knocked out this brick at the bottom of this wall and it's starting to collapse and they're quickly just trying to push a mortar in there. I gotta make this work. It can't fall down or I have no meaning. <laughs> My response is just calm the fuck down. What is the lyric from the opening credits of Mystery Science Theater 3000? If you're wondering how he eats or breathes or other science facts, just repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. <laughs> and fans need to just calm the fuck down 
everything has flaws, and you can't point out the fact that this thing is solved in this novel or that comic or this radio drama or that video game. The fact that they fixed it in that alternative universe, expanded universe novel, is proof that another author saw it too and worked to fix it. That is proof that it was there, not proof that it wasn't. And what I really hope is that people just grow the fuck up, learn to love this as a grown-up with all its flaws, rather than try to pretend it's perfect. Just please, please, please <laughs> calm the fuck down. So, Ryan, I know you've had a chance to stew on that one, and I want you to a chance to regurgitate some of, hopefully not the bile that's been building up while I explained all of that. I'd like to know, what is your low point for the Expanded Universe? Well, first, can I just say that that, that point you made about um, Yavin... I had caught that one too, and I've never seen a good explanation. So, you know, as a fan, I'm willing to accept it. And in fact, I think, I don't want to say it's my low point, but I think that the explanation of Parsec, when, you know, when they misuse Parsec, mm-hmm. you know, because that got explained away later about, you know, it has to do with Han Solo flying close to the Maw, like how close he could fly, and so that's how fast he was you know, able to go like that is actually kind of a low point in Star Wars is that they fat, you know, they had to fix it. I don't think they should have. I think the easiest um, way to fix that is just to say Han Solo is a bullshitter and he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's and, not a nerd. Yeah, he gets he gets caught in a bunch of bullshit all the time. It's one of the fun right. charms of the character. Yes. Is yes. that he'll go like, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I know how to pick the lock on a door, and then the outer door closes, and he kind of like, eh. <laughs> That's the fun part of his character, is that he talks a big game, and he screws up sometimes. Yeah, and I think he was there. I mean, he was trying to get a better price in the negotiation at that moment. Um, but anyway, so for the low point, I've had, I have a hard time, because a lot of... For me, expanded universes are really full of high points. So coming up with a low point is hard for me to some degree. But I, you know, I have one, and I, it's going to sound like I'm some kind of like socialist <laughs> or something, <laughs> some kind of revolutionary. And I, I just before I go into it, I just want to mention that I have a I have a degree in applied economics. There's I'm not uh, I'm not someone who's anti-capitalist. Okay, put away your cybers, internet, <laughs> right? Do you have a but cue it, for the music to like a TED talk that you can intro with? Or the Star Spangled Banner. Right. Uh, I was going to put a socialist male choral chant. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I don't mind socialist, but, you know, I'm not some like, I'm not, I, I, I'm okay with sort of the free-ish market. But so here's my thing. Ex- expanded universes include all of this extra merchandising that goes into making as much money as possible off of people's love for a work of art. And, you know, I really think that where art meets the market is such a difficult part of our society that this is kind of really the seedy underbelly of it is, well, you know, some people made something really cool and maybe they retain the rights, but then some other people who work with them and are trying to squeeze as much money out of that as possible make some stuff that maybe isn't quite as good. And it, and we see this all the time, obviously, with, with Roddenberry and Lucas, where they're trying to sometimes control this stuff and sometimes not. And we can, we're very critical of them over how much control they have, you know, what how much control they've exerted. So for me, like the low point, I mean, I played a couple of sort of tablet and Facebook games for some recently re-released sorts of things. You know, like Lord of the Rings has a tablet game, you know, has an Android app that is absolutely terrible like easily one of the worst games i've ever played 
and I've played a lot of video games. <laughs> you know, it's it's just one of these things where it's like, well, you know, and and the same goes for like I played a Game of Thrones Facebook game. You know, they want you to invest money, but they also want it to be a free game. So it's designed to just gouge you into eventually paying some bucks. And they're really poorly written sometimes. And they're, I mean that in terms of game mechanics. As sort of like a, a gamer, I'm really insulted by the design of these things and that they would be part of things that I really like. So I think that's the low point. The low point is when things go a little bit too far where you're making actually bad experiences out of things that we all love in that you know, sort of chasing the dollar. So it's time to pull ourselves out of the Sarlacc pit and climb to the apex of Mount Soleil. Mixing metaphors, motherfucker. It's time for High Point. And that means we're going to the top of the mountain. Where is the expanded universe at its best? Ryan, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You said there were a lot of high points in the expanded universe. What is the highest? Fan fiction. And I think that in particular... In particular, it's slash fiction. <laughs> yes! <laughs> wow. Vindicated! It, so let's... let's <laughs> just just for a second, let's both define slash fiction, fiction and mention where it comes from, right? <laughs> slash, slash fiction is fan fiction that is about characters having sex, right? <laughs> and it comes from, what, Kirk slash Spock. Is that... that the, I think that's the order. Yes. It's about... Kirk and Spock having sex. This is apparently an entire subgenre of fanfic, like a formational subgenre <laughs> of fanfiction. On I don't know if it was on the internet even at that point, but the, you know, uh, the that's where this comes from. So it's just called slash fiction now. They had fanzines back then. It was mailed. Right. That's yeah. it. that's what it was. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, like for me, the reason why why that's so important is that well, there are a number of reasons, but the, I I think that the <laughs> The point at which our love for these franchises or settings, these these universes, compel us to not only write about them and create our own part of it and take that, you know, because I I really believe that art becomes part of society at a certain point. You release it, society owns it. We take ownership of that. We make it, you know, we embellish it. We share it with each other in a community. But then on top of that, to take that into our own sexuality, Hmm. to then express things that we want to see that you know that, that that this has something to do with their own personal sexuality like that is amazing to me that is a breakthrough and i can't think of anything else in all of fandom that compares to how revolutionary that is and certainly not in ter- I, mean, I mean potentially not in terms of the the larger sort of like our love of fiction and rosalind i think you're going to come from a similar place on this perhaps i saw your chair I, is your high point the same as this one it's I give him props for that because there's there's definitely the notion of it playing into the wider consciousness of what art is and how it eventually affects every aspect of your life. And that includes sexuality or someone's sense of romance. But I I kind of have two high points, if that's possible. I'm to, to piggyback on the slash fic. I actually one of my favorite <laughs> piggyback. Ha ha ha. Woo. Oh, my. That shit is hot. <laughs> you were talking about. Spock and Kirk being centaurs. <laughs> and actually, the reason that I brought that up is there's slash fic and there's all these other genres of fan fiction. My favorite is what's called crack fic. 
Has anyone heard of crackfic? No. Crackfic is essentially to take the pre-established tropes that occur in fiction generally, but in slash fiction or just different types of fan fiction in particular, and make them seem as absurd as possible. So centaurs would be a pretty good one. Um, I read one where the uh, three presenters of Top Gear were all mermaids. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There are other things as well, like uh, a common trope that occurs in fan fiction is male pregnancy. So mm-hmm. like Spock um, always having Kirk's baby. Well, yeah, and then yes. it's in in some places it happened in canon. Red Dwarf had a canon male pregnancy, but um, there are all sorts of just weird, kind of m- almost maniacal things that fan fiction writers do, and I don't think they quite do it to get a rise out of the fan base. I think they just do it for the sake of humor, and it's just this great sort of outlet of creative energy and, for lack of a better term, bat shittery that is really hmm. fun to witness, and I think. It's probably my favorite part of an expanded universe to try and incorporate in. Now, the the other thing I was going to say is, for a high point, um, there are minor characters in works of fiction that you know so little about. And you always kind of wonder, okay, what happened to this guy after this happened? And I like, I think it's human nature to want a sense of resolution in things, a sense of closure, whether it's the, you know, really serious stuff, like maybe something happens in real life, death of a family member or whatever. But it happens on a mundane level as well. And I think it's cool to see that part of human nature where we go, I want resolution for this guy, for my own satisfaction. And there's a sense of empathy. Like, I want this person to have a sense of closure, too, even though they're fictional. And I think it's kind of oddly heartwarming. So, yeah, two high points. Hmm. Casey, where do we go high? Where is the best, highest point? Of the expanded universe. Yeah. Being a Star Trek fanatic, first and foremost, it's I really only ever had a passing interest in EU stuff, and I really don't have any interest now. But with Star Wars, it the it's actually quite quite interesting. Like we've established that I'm not the Star Wars guy. But for me, like some of the coolest experiences to happen, and I said this before on the Star on the Lucas panel, were the video games. And for me, like Star Wars TIE Fighter, the PC game, is one of those that was fucking fantastic. Not only from the fact that it's just a great gameplay, but you're also, you're playing, it is a, it's a great role-playing game because you're playing a character who is, has a piece in a story that you know of, but it doesn't violate things that I was talking about in my low point. It doesn't place you as the wingman to Luke Skywalker, really. What it does is it places you as a completely unknown before that point Imperial pilot who ingratiates himself, who finds himself at the behest of a secret order of the emperor, a like a secret order of mages who serve the the emperor uh, separate from the rest of the empire, who do his, who do his bidding, um, all through the gameplay of being a imperial pilot in a space sim game, essentially. Um, and I just loved how cool, how, I was so blown away by how cool it was to have exposed this other side of the narrative that you don't get when you're always talking, always on the side of the rebellion. You're always hanging out with Chewie and Han and Luke and whatever. And I, you know, only later did I realize that they kind of folded this secret order of the empire as an official canon thing into other things that happened in the alternate universe. And like just the excitement of, of playing in, in battles that are maybe not they're maybe not the battle of Yavin that's on there but you you believe that you're taking part in stuff that is actually part of the universe itself and you're helping decide its outcome and you're doing it as this dude Merrick Steele I think I believe it the name is um and that this character does end up like growing and becoming a part of the narrative in the universe that is separate from the main plot of the of the story 
So TIE Fighter is amazing, and I still love it to this day. This is also kind of paired with how much I love the Knights of the Old Republic games. I don't, I have no familiarity with the MMO. I know that's really heavy on the canon, but that also exemplified the coolest parts of what, like when you say, okay, we know all this shit that happened between uh, these periods of time in the Star Wars universe. Let's do it a couple thousand years earlier. Like, let's take this recognizable and yet different iteration on Star Wars and make new heroes and uh, and and have a whole new backstory to it. And I, I, the Old Republic is is great for me. Um, I, I I say it, it it lives up to sort of the universe that Macquarie and John Dykstra and Ben Burt created, which my contention still is is that those three guys created Star Wars more than George Lucas did, and we owe more of them to them than than Lucas. Um, and I don't care much about the lore of Old Republic, but I just think that uh, creating a brand new setting within a setting that is free to be itself was made those first two KOTOR games so amazing for me and made me just want to plow through them and love the characters and love the Star Wars setting again. I had to think about this a lot when I was going to look at what I thought was a high point of the expanded universe and the first thing I thought I might do is just say, okay, well, I enjoy some expanded universe stuff, particularly with Planet of the Apes. I would just pick out my favorite one there, but then something else popped into my mind. And I'm saying, you know what? When I have this conversation, I'm going to hold this in reserve because I realized how awesome it was and how it overtook everything that I could think of as an alternate. And that is the Carl Barks comic books about Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge. (laughs) (laughs) And... To really understand this, you have to look at what was the quote-unquote A canon of Donald Duck before he started appearing in comic books by Carl Barks. The original Donald Duck animated shorts were essentially just situational comedies. The world that the character lived in uh, was pretty fluid. Donald was essentially an actor. His character would be consistent from story to story, but his situation would be different. He was a farmer or a museum security guard. He was a truant officer or a soldier or just going on vacation. You didn't really need to know anything other than the immediate present tense. It was situational humor. Stuff happened to Donald, and Donald would react to it, usually with his anger. He didn't have a real world to live in. And the cartoon would just end. I mean, you'd have three minutes and the story was over. So you don't have time for world building in the middle of a short like that. So Donald always went back to zero at the end of every one of these stories. Carl Barks created in the 20 plus years that he wrote this character in comics, a world for Donald Duck to live in. He populated it with friends and neighbors and relatives and villains, things that you didn't see in the original Donald shorts. And because they were longer because of 20 pages of a comic book than a three minutes short, you had the time to build on that stuff. Both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have openly said that these Donald stories were a huge influence on them creating Indiana Jones and especially Hmm. the boulder trap at the beginning of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is straight out of an uncle Scrooge comic. Hmm. If you really want to understand the idea that we took this character who was largely just a comedy character that appeared in animated shorts and you put him in longer stories, you put him on globetrotting adventures and treasure hunting or just solving mysteries, doing things that he never did or had time to do in the short, you know, pre-movie shorts that he was in. And he created an entire universe. These are the characters and concepts that Karl Barks created in his comic. Uncle Scrooge. Duckburg, the city that he lived in, the Money Bin, the Beagle Boys, Magicka Dispel, Flitheart Glomgold, who's the second richest duck in the world, who is Scrooge's number one rival, Gladstone Gander, the just infuriatingly lucky douchebag cousin of Donald Duck, who (laughs) 
never worked and everything always worked out in his favor. The big adventure stories versus just situational comedies, but Carl Barks would sometimes do one-page stories that would do those as well. It could also be argued that he was the real creator of Huey, Dewey, and Louie, but that's kind of up in the air. Hmm. But these characters that he created started seeding back into animated shorts, started being seeded back into animated series. So the series of DuckTales is essentially just a complete love letter to the work that Carl Barks did in 20 years of comics. All of these characters, including Uncle Scrooge, the key character that overtook even Donald as being the star of these comic books, this miserly uncle who is kind of globetrotting the world looking for more wealth and using his relatives and paying them minimum wage <laughs> because he wasn't going to spend a dime to go about it this way other rich characters would. That is a Karl Barks creation. And you could say that this version of Donald and Uncle Scrooge in this world that he lives in is the new canonical version. Hmm. Hmm. That it overtook the idea that this is supplementary material and is largely seen by many fans as the version of Donald Duck. Hmm. That the version you saw in the animated shorts, that's the one who's appearing in supplementary material. And that, more than anything, is why I chose Donald Duck, Carl Barks Comics as my high point. Because it's the only place I could see where the supplementary material was so much bigger and grander and actually overtook people's perception of what this character and his universe was away from the primary material and became the new primary material. That's why Donald Duck is my high point. Wow. So with that said, I want to thank all of our great panelists for joining us. Ryan Shaddock from Ryan Shaddock Games. That's a great name, by the way. Thank you for <laughs> joining us. And Rosalind Townsend, thank you as always. Thank you. Casey Doran, as always, my friend. A pleasure. And with that, we want to bid you adieu and thank you for joining us on this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. We will see you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. The point is, I'm still not sure what the donut chips were there to do. And don't any of you f***ers tell me that it was explained more in the novelization or some Star Wars book. What matters is the movie. I ain't never read one of them Star Wars books, or any books in general for that matter. I ain't about to start. Don't talk about them stupid video games or, or novels, or f comic books, or any of that fucking crap. I've seen enough of that shit.